Paleo nerds. Two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds. Because deep time will blow your mind. David, David, David. I missed you, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I missed you too. I did. I missed you. I missed you yelling at me and I missed you correcting all my pronunciations. <laughs> we are working on our working relationship, you know, but it's all beautiful, man. We're getting there, yeah, dude. Yeah. You know, I'm the I'm the laid back hippie and you're you're like the intense entertainer. Yeah, so. I am. I am intense. That's because I have all these voices in my head that won't shut up. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I kind of know about all those voices in your so head. So how is Ketchikan? This, again, I keep saying it. It's the first year I have not been back. It's so, so... Ketchikan is beautiful. We've had a lot of rain, as you know, but there's been these beautiful stretches of weather. We have some beautiful weather going on right now. And yesterday was a really cool day, man, because I was walking down to the dock and there was a bubble-feeding humpback whale. Wait a minute. Just work in the dock. In autumn? Yeah, in autumn. And basically, it's been around all week, but uh, it was bubble feeding right off of Birth One, down by the sourdough bar. So bubble feeding <laughs> is where they make these circular... Yeah, and usually they work together. This was a solitary whale. One whale, but it actually there were like 50 people gathering in the dock just watching this. <gasps> no way! And it would form... This one whale, you could watch it, it would perfectly it'd blow these bubbles a big circle and then all you had to do is wait and up it would come mouth wide open swallowing everything that was in the but water it's column. herring right well i think herring of course is going after small fish but uh i think baby salmon too man but uh whatever's well, describe, there you know describe how autumn arrives after the ketchikan summer which which you rarely had this year well, that's it's just a blur, man. But uh, now uh, autumn is here and uh, it's raining a lot more. But that's what but there aren't really was. any deciduous trees that turn the colors like you see in Vermont. Are, are, are there a few? A few, right? Are they no, native? I mean, they're, they're alder. Alder trees are, oh. are native. Red alder right. turns yellowish orange, and um, we have mountain ash, which also turn colors. And uh, people have planted a few maples here and there too. So, but I thought kind of the whole fish runs and the herring and, and all that start going away when autumn arrives and winter comes. You know, the salmon run, you know, in the summertime, but uh, everything else is still here. But the bears are sleeping now, so it's kind of <laughs> nice to not have to worry about them. Can you hear them so. snoring in your backyard? <laughs> I, I can, I can, man. So wait, I want so, to go yeah. back to this bubble feeding. So is this whale eating herring? What? Could you see anything yeah. dripping off its mouth as well, it comes up? Uh, it's kind of slim pickings down. I mean, it, it's the, the, the plankton is still rich and there are small fish around, but there are juvenile salmon. But wait, what is you he still doing here? Along. Shouldn't he be heading down to Mexico or he or she? Uh, they usually go to Hawaii. Uh, our humpbacks oh, go to Hawaii to have their know little babies. That. 
But there are a number of humpbacks that have begun to winter here, like, eh, whatever, I don't know, they're the lazy humpbacks, but there's ones that just stay here year-round. And more and more, I guess that we could talk to a whale biologist. And as we found out in our last season, the closest kin to whales are... Um, people who eat at Boston Kitchen? <laughs> Hippopotamus. Hippopotamus. Oh, that's right. That's right. So, yeah. Anyways, yeah, so that was cool. And, you know, I do want to acknowledge that I am in Ketchikan, uh, the traditional and current lands of the Tongass Clinket within the shared waters of the Simshian and Haida people. So it's it's a cool, wonderful place to be because culturally this is a very rich, uh, inspiring town to be in. It's a real honor to be here. Well, when you think about it, the Bering land bridge of southeast alaska is one of the first places that was inhabited by by native peoples yeah and that's what's been interesting too watching some of these newer discoveries realizing that um, you know it stretches back maybe twenty thousand years the so-called new world and uh with uh people coming over from eurasia or were they coming also from the south pacific but there have been some incredible discoveries. Actually, down near San Diego, there is a site. It's still uh, being it's a little contentious. Yeah, that kind of claims to be the oldest Paleolithic evidence. There are, I think, I believe there are uh, cut marks on bone, and it's something like eighteen thousand years old, something like that. No, Dave. Incorrect again, Dave. No, it's it's a hundred thousand. What? One hundred thousand. Are you serious? If you go back a hundred thousand, yeah, it's it's a site um, off the freeway in San Diego, and <laughs> uh, it's off the freeway next to the McDonald's. <laughs> well, yeah, well, seriously, it is. I think they were working the freeway and they found this site. Basically, it's mastodon bones that look like they have been um, arranged by humans. There was a, a femur that's standing like straight up, and there were no other bones around. These bones have been broken. Right. But systematically broken and crushed is what it And appears. what do the naysayers say? What do, what do they say? Oh, it's a bad alluvial movement. and Right, that it's that kind of thing. So there were no tools that were found, right. but it, it seems to be the, uh, that these bones were crushed and broken by, by humans. Well, have you seen the La Brea fossils where through time the fossils are jumbled in this matrix of tar and they cut into each other? They actually make cut marks by scraping against each other over millennia? Huh. Did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah, but that's what I love is that science is never finite. You, you know, you, you learn that... Uh, dinosaurs existed, and then you find out they weren't lumbering creatures, that they actually run. And they most likely are warm-blooded and have these incredible metabolism. And, and, you know, then you find out that there's, you know, so many species at the end of the Cretaceous. And then we find out that maybe there were hardly any species at the end of the Cretaceous. I see where you're going with this. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of kind of leads into our guest today, right? Uh, possibly, possibly. But here, here's what our good friend, Dr. Kirk Johnson from the Smithsonian said. He said, try to imagine the Cretaceous as the African savanna. You have predators and prey, and there are old, and there's the young, and there's herds of this and predators hiding there and it's this huge ecosystem populated with many many species but what if 
there's only a handful because all the niches have been taken up. All the ones that weren't successful in evolution died out and pretty much left a just a handful of predator and prey. Sort of a diminishing population. It was just the diversity was lacking. Well, there's been a lot of debate at the very end of the Cretaceous, the Hell Creek Formation, which is where you find your T-Rexes and Triceratops and Edmontosaurs and all that. Was it a very healthy ecosystem? Were the dinosaurs already on their way out? And when that asteroid hit in that one very bad day, 66 million years ago, but but dude, we're talking about, I think, probably the the best known paleontologist in the world is going to be our guest. And I am super excited. You mean Dr. Man. Alan Grant? <laughs> <laughs> no, the guy who inspired Dr. Alan Grant. It's this true. Is, is that we are going to have Jack Horner on, and I am so excited. Uh, Jack Horner is the guy that uh, the Jurassic Park character was uh, inspired by. Now, didn't he have a cameo on... in the film somewhere or get eaten or something? Not until uh, Jurassic Park number four, Jurassic World, right. he's got a cameo on there. You, you're thinking about uh, Bakker. Oh, right, uh, right, right. Gets eaten. He's, he's got the cowboy hat yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we can ask Jack about that. Uh, why did Bakker... Bakker got eaten and not you. <laughs> well, look, uh, um, he's in my uh, time zone. So uh, let's uh, give him a ring and uh, find out about his Chickenosaurus. Chickenosaurus. Yeah, man. <laughs> let's call him up. All right. Hey, 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 Jack Horner. Welcome to the show. Jack is the internationally known paleontologist. He's a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. He's a scientific advisor to all of the Jurassic Park films, and he's widely considered to be one of the world's top scientists. Jack, it is truly an honor, and I'm just a fanboy. I, I'm, I'm just thrilled <laughs> that you've decided to join a ventriloquist and an artist here in Paleo Nerds. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for being here. How are you? I'm good. Excellent. Are you a Paleo Nerd, Jack? Well, I've been a paleo nerd since I was five years old. Yeah, I'm curious about that backstory. The Jackazoic era and uh, starts out with you finding a dinosaur bone when you were a kid, right? Actually, I, I found my first fossils when I was five, and I found my first dinosaur bone when I was eight. What were the first fossils in what formation? They were uh, Inoceramus clams Yeah. out of the pier. Pier shale. Yeah. They're boring clams, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so that dinosaur bone. So you you started out with clamshells, and uh, you're in uh, in Montana. You were born in Shelby, Montana, right? So uh, I was reading a, a bio of you. Maybe the first few months of your life, you were living in a tent down by the river. Yes, my father owned a gravel plant, uh, sand and gravel. Just after the war, housing was really you know. From after the war, there was nowhere to live in any of the town. So my father just, you know, he, he had a sand and gravel outfit on the Marias River south of Shelby. And, and so he just put up a tent and he put his newborn baby and mother <laughs> and the mother and, and the grandmother uh, who had come to help. Wow. In a tent. And then he got himself a bull snake and put the bull snake in the in the tent as well to keep the mice down. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's quite an upbringing there. And, uh, so you uh, you got turned on to fossils just on your own. Uh, was it a science teacher, or uh, you 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 were out collecting clamshells? And 
we lived on the river for only, you know, until October or so, I, you know, when winter really broke. We moved into town, and, and when I was five years old, my father's business had, had grown exponentially, and, and he built a house, a nice house for us up on a hill, and it's the Colorado Shale which is part of the pier. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and the vacant lot behind my house was a great place to look for fossils. And what, what age is the, uh, the pier formation? It's uh, Seaway, so it's um, oh. 90 million. Okay, so it's Lake Cretaceous. Yes. Yeah, Lake Cretaceous uh, marine sediments. And so the clamshells led you to dinosaur bones. I was really interested in the fossils of the clams and I started finding ammonites and things like that in the in the shale when I was six and seven years old and and you know my father was a you know a gravel man so he was kind of a, he knew a lot about geology uh. and he was watching my interest and and I at that time you know in the 50s you could get little toy dinosaurs and cornflakes or something <laughs> like that that's how I started yes I, All right. I, Yep, yep. Yeah. I could. I I fought my my siblings for those little tiny dinosaurs. Ray, you still in, have your plastic dinosaur collection. I do right? have my plastic dinosaurs. They came, and many of them did come in in cereal boxes. Yes, they so. did. And and Ned Colbert, you know, was publishing his dinosaur books back in those days. Was this with the Charles Knight illustrations? Yes, and I got one for I think my seventh birthday. And I was just fascinated with dinosaurs. So my father, my father had owned a ranch before World War II, and he remembered riding his horse across the property and seeing big bones sticking out of the rocks. And so when I was eight years old and just really into dinosaurs, he took me to his old ranch and we went and it's the two medicine formation and there are bones everywhere. And so, wow. I was a, I picked up my first dinosaur bone and, and, you know, it was 50 miles from where my house was. And then, you know, my mother, she liked driving, she just liked driving around. My father wasn't big on driving around, but my mother loved it. And so I started picking out places that I wanted to look for dinosaurs. And some of them were in Alberta, Canada. I, you know, I was born in Shelby is very close to the Canadian border. My mother would drive me up to what would become Dinosaur Provincial Park in Alberta. Wow. And also the Milk River near Haver is a very good place. Uh, you know, I've collected lots of dinosaurs there over the years. So so you also did your, you did a high school science fair uh, that yeah. really changed your life too. You compared those fossils you were finding, and you're just a high schooler comparing fossils yeah in Montana with those in Canada, and you came to some sort of conclusions and... I was, you know, going up to Canada, even, you know, even as a young kid, seeing these beautiful skeletons in Dinosaur Provincial Park. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, working along the Milk River in Haver, everything's just junky. It's just junk. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's, you know, you can pick up fossil teeth and you can pick up bones of dinosaurs. But I knew by then that both these places, Dinosaur Provincial Park and the Milk River of Montana, the geologists said that it was the, the Judith River Formation, both of them. And I was like, how can, how can they have such beautiful skeletons in Canada and, you know, 200 miles south 
have just a bunch of junk. And so when I was a senior in high school, I made an exhibit comparing one with the other and sort of asking the question, what is the difference? So what is the difference? Is it is it two different formations or is it well erosion? <laughs> yeah, it took uh, it took a lot of years to figure it out, huh. but it really is. They they really are different ages uh, for the most part. At least where I was going on the Milk River, the age was somewhat different, but it's also a different drainage and was at the time. The rivers that came out of the Canadian Rockies were very different than the rivers that came out of the American Rockies. And there was a, there's a thing called the Milk River Ridge, which was a, a high point even back in the Cretaceous. It basically is the divide. If, if you think about right now, the, uh, the Mississippi and Missouri drainage, right, coming off of the Rockies, if you follow it all the way north, the, the northwestern boundary of the Mississippi drainage is in Glacier National Park in Montana. Hmm. And just the very northern part of Glacier National Park is the Belly River. And it flows into Canada and eventually into the Arctic. And so there's actually a mountain in Glacier National Park called Triple Divide. Oh, right. Wow. So you have the eastern, yeah, you have the eastern, the west, and then a northern drainage. And the northern, yes. Wow, yes. wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, that would go into the Great Slave Lake. Well, yeah, it does, yes. Yep. Jack, do you have pictures of you at that science fair with your dinosaur bones all laid out and your... Just, no. No? <laughs> no. Well, you got uh, yeah. noticed at that science fair, didn't you? Uh, there was a geologist that was quite yes. impressed, and, and that's uh, sort of mentored you or steered you toward... Yeah, I, I won the science fair in Shelby, and then that allowed me to go to the state fair in Missoula. Mm-hmm. Judges, at least for paleontology the, and geology, the judges were from the University of Montana. At that time, it was called Montana State University, uh, mm. but... They were the judges. They looked at it. They really liked the project, and they invited me to come to college there. Now, I I was extremely dyslexic as a child and growing up, and so I wasn't sure I was going to graduate from high school because I had such poor grades throughout my life. Well, you sure showed that English teacher when you published <laughs> your book. <laughs> Yeah, so so I entered the University of Montana after I graduated from high school with my D minus 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 <laughs> English. Lordy, wow, okay. <laughs> Jack, you were not diagnosed with dyslexia until much later in your life. Right. It must have been really tough for you facing this. Well, you know, my father always just, he thought I was just really lazy. And my mother, she would take me to the eye doctor and she'd take me to the hearing specialist. She, she just thought there was something physically wrong with me. Bless her heart. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't know. You know, there was definitely something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. I discovered that at, when I was working at Princeton. There was a, mm. a big sign on a bulletin board. It was aimed at the students, and it said, would you rather write a letter, or would you rather make a phone call than write a letter? Would you rather see a movie than read a book? You know, it was a whole bunch of things like that. And said, if you say, you know, if you answered yes to these questions, come see such and such a person at such and such an office. <laughs> That's a great resource. I just, I went there. I was like, I answered all those things. I'm not a student. Really like to know what, what the deal is. Wow, this was at Princeton. So you were in Vietnam for a while, and then you 
when you came back, you ended up working as a fossil prep guy in Princeton at the in the collection there. Yeah, I, I went to college and I at the end of my first quarter, I, I flunked. And so then they put me on probation. And then the next quarter, I flunked out. And then I was drafted. I had ROTC, those two quarters that I was at the school. And so I had some military training. And I also started scuba diving at the time um, in Montana, of all places. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. And uh, Huh. <laughs> when I was drafted, they put me into the Marine Corps, Wow! which they only drafted for one month. And I just happened to be one of the people that was lucky enough to get into the Marines. And then the Marines put me in, in their special forces group, the uh, reconnaissance. So because I'd have military and I was a scuba diver. Wow. So I went to Vietnam and spent my 14 months and then came back and went back to college again with my 0.06 grade average. <laughs> and needless to say, wow. finally, my professors were very supportive. They went and, and to the dean and said, we don't know what's wrong with this guy. He really likes fossils. We don't know what he's gonna do in life, but he's not passing, but we'd still like to just let him take whatever he wants to take and get where he wants to go. And so I took classes, I learned how to do preparation. So you were actually preparing fossils back in Princeton. Yeah. Well, and... I was preparing fossils at Montana. Oh, in Montana, right. At their museum. Okay. That's where I learned preparation and I learned curation and I learned, you know, and I learned a lot about geology and I took all, all of the paleontology classes they had and they had a lot. They had three paleontologists at the University of Montana. Wow. Vertebrate, invertebrate and paleobotanist. So I couldn't help but notice that you actually did uh, a thesis paper on the Bear Gulch, uh, Lagerstaten, the sharks. Yes. So you were a shark guy for a little bit or? No, no. I, <laughs> oh. <laughs> the, the curator of their collections, a guy named Bill Melton, people were always calling and, and sending things to the, to the museum when they would find things. And a guy in uh, the middle of Montana near Lewistown found a fossil fish and he sent it and Bill Melton uh, looked at it and realized that, you know, it could be important. It was a coelacanth. It was clearly a coelacanth. And so he hired me as his assistant. The next summer, we went out together to look at this, at this rock unit that was very well known by petroleum geologists, but no one had ever found anything in it. And there was this fish. And so we went out, spent a summer, really within the first two weeks of starting to quarry into this limestone, we were finding extraordinary fish fossils, soft-bodied animals, uh, just a plethora of, of incredible, you know, Lagerstaten-type fossils. And that's Mississippian, Carboniferous Mississippian? Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. So what soft-bodied animals did you find? We found polychaete worms. We found, we found what I still think is the first conodon animal. Oh, oh I see, okay. Conodonts are tiny, mysterious, tooth-like fossils that baffled paleontologists for 150 years. That's right, for well over a century, no one could agree on what type of animal group they even belonged to until 1983 when the first complete fossil of a conodont body was found. Turns out to be one of the earliest chordates in the fossil record, resembling a big-eyed, jawless eel or, or a lamprey. It's the chordates, by the way, that gave rise to the vertebrates and to creatures like you and me. They went extinct at the end of the Triassic and 
There are only 11 known fossils in the entire world showing the body shape of these once very abundant creatures and quite possibly more if Jack's assertion is right about the Barrett Gulch fossils. It's a really cool looking thing. It's got, it's got a caudal fin, it's got a dorsal fin, it's got a notochord. Right. It's right. got a stomach, you can see. I mean, it's got all kinds of weird looking stuff in it. And inside of its stomach, in its, it's got what looks like these filtering devices and they are conodonts. And they, they're set in this stomach-like thing in, in a way so that they look like they could filter out food. Wow. That's interesting. It's a strange looking animal. It is definitely a protochordate, but uh, Simon Conway Morris, he said it's not a conodont animal, even though he said it ate conodont animals. <laughs> well, Snacked on them. The, the ironic things about it is, of course, every one of these creatures has only one set of conodonts in them, you know? So it apparently it only ate one conodont animal and that <laughs> one conodont animal killed it. <laughs> whatever it was and we've never found any other kind of creature there with conodonts in them yeah it's an amazing amazing sight so i want to fast forward if i may but yeah but hold on a second. i just want to say I, I love how you take paleontology and you simplify it into almost the occam's razor what seems to be the most obvious is usually the truest idea and You've done that with minimizing the amount of uh, species at the end of the Cretaceous and turning the pachycephalosaurs from three species into one. I, I love how you're simple. It's simple. It's simplicity. And it makes and it seems to be common sense. And, and uh, that's impressive, Jack. Well, thank you. I, I guess I could blame it all on dyslexia. I don't read, so I don't know what everybody else's ideas are. So I create my own. <laughs> wow. Well, being the master of the obvious, uh, really, and, and like I said, you are considered one of the top scientists in the world, and you've, you've yet you've you faced all these uh, these challenges, Jack. Uh, but your life changed when you walked into a rock shop in Bynum. Yes. up a little bit. When I was at Princeton, one of the things I found there was I found some fossils that had been collected by Earl Douglas in Montana. They were the, literally the first dinosaur skeletons found in Montana. And they were at Princeton, of all places, and nobody knew about them. And they were in limestone concretions. They were literally from the bear paw, the marine bear paw shale. Hmm. And they were beautiful skeletons, but not prepared. But what was interesting about it was they were little. I mean, they were they were clearly not adult dinosaurs. Interesting. And at the same time, this was so I was hired at Princeton in 1975, and that's when I saw those skeletons. And that was exactly that was the year that Peter Dodson published his paper showing that these dinosaurs that had been previously named like Prokinosaurus were actually juvenile crested dinosaurs like Corythosaurus and Lambiosaurus and things like that. So, mm -hmm. so it was kind of the perfect storm, basically. I came to Princeton. That paper was published. There were these Prokinosaur-like dinosaurs that had been found in Montana. And then I, 
I went to the American Museum. I looked at the fossils that had been found in Montana, and Barnum Brown had found some juvenile dinosaurs, including a prokinosaur mm. that Peter Dodson was now saying was a juvenile hypacrosaur. And then I went to the Smithsonian, and they also had some small dinosaurs, including, you know, Brachyceratops, which is a juvenile horned dinosaur. So I started looking at all that stuff, and it was for Montana, and I thought, you know, nobody really realized that, you know, there really are juvenile dinosaurs. In fact, people had published papers about how rare baby dinosaurs were and, and juvenile dinosaurs. And so it just seemed, seemed for a guy who doesn't read, <laughs> the perfect thing to study, right? I didn't have to read anything. How did that then send you back to Montana to look for these? Well, I was born and raised in Montana. So when I when I was working for Don Baird at Princeton, he worked in Nova Scotia. And so I would go up there and help him collect stuff. But when I got my first vacation, it was for a month. And I went back to Montana. And that was 1977. I was then, you know, I was a preparator at Princeton. I was on vacation in Montana. The first thing I did was go back to the site where I had found my first dinosaur bone in the Two Medicine Formation. And while I was there, I found, I didn't know what I found. I found this weird thing and I took it back to Princeton and Don Baird took me down into collections and he showed me a, a pile of little fragments of egg that Glenn Jepson had collected in Montana in 1931. Wow. And it was identical. So I had found a dinosaur egg in the two medicine formation. Was it complete or was it fragmentary? It was it was crushed. I tried to put it all together. It wasn't whole, but it was it was it was a pretty good you know, it was a pretty good chunk of one. And, you know, that's that makes one of the first dinosaur eggs found in the Western Hemisphere. That's incredible. And that leads you to 1979 when you discovered... 78. 1970. Then the next year, my friend Bob Mackle and I were... We went to the Milk River first, and he lived up in Rudyard and taught there. And, and so we went up there first, and we were looking for the same sort of things. We were looking for eggshell, we were looking for babies, we were looking for juveniles, we were looking for all sorts of things. Couldn't find any, but while we were there, Bill Clemens came out to see them. And he said, oh, by the way, the state of Montana contacted me and there's some woman in Bynum, Montana, <laughs> found a dinosaur skeleton and wanted it identified. And I'm, Bob and I said, well, we're heading to the Bear Gulch We'll go around that way through Bynum on our way and just see what she's got. And so we did. We went to the her rock shop. She had a the back end of a hadros, a large hadrosaur skeleton, but it was a rock shop. She was selling a lot of other fossils. And so we just walked around and identified all of her fossils for her. And as we were leaving, she said, oh, by the way, do you have any idea what these little things are? <laughs> oh, wow. She held out her hand and in her hand, there were three bones, and one of them was the distal end of a hadrosaur femur the size of your thumb. Wow. I knew exactly what it was. I mean, I had been looking at these little fossils that they'd found in Mongolia, and I, I mean, I just knew what it was. And I said, you know, this is extraordinary. I said, do you have any more? And she said, oh, yeah, we have a whole coffee table full of them. <laughs> wow. And we went over there, and there were little baby jaws, and there were pieces, just fragments all over this table. That is so cool. These are really important 
Did you know right then that they were embryonic or juvenile? I had no idea what they were at that time. Not a clue. There were a bunch of them. I said, can we go out and see the site? And she said, well, they're on a private ranch. I'll have to call them. It was a week and a half later. We went back out there. She graciously gave those bones to you, right? Well, she did, yes. <laughs> and, and then we got to the site and the hill, little there was this little hill and it was just absolutely covered with baby bones. Wow. Just, there were just thousands of pieces, vertebrae. A lot of it was in little um, caliche limestone concretions. We still couldn't tell what it was. And so we finally figured out who the landowner was. Took a lot to find that out. The people that found it didn't really want us to know who owned it. And so finally, we just discovered who the landowner was. We went and saw them and asked if we could excavate the site. And they gave us permission. And uh, Bob and I excavated. And while we excavated, we realized that when we were going down, it was this bowl-shaped depression full of baby dinosaurs. And it was they were mostly disarticulated. There was probably articulation, but it was not clear. The landowners had given us three days to collect whatever we could collect. Oh, my. But while we were collecting it, the lady, Mrs. Brandvold, her daughter-in-law found something and they brought pieces of it to us and they had found something and they had, they didn't know how to collect and so they had collected it with the kind of tools you don't want to collect yeah. things with and what they brought to us were pieces of a skull a duckbill dinosaur skull they led us to the site they said there's nothing left we went there excavated one side of the skull had been pretty much destroyed, but the other side of the skull was in very good shape. And it was clearly a new kind of dinosaur. I mean, it was a duckbill dinosaur like nothing I had ever seen. It looked more like an iguanodon hmm. than anything. And so we took that and we took the what we thought at the time was probably a nest because of its shape and went back to Rudyard where we could kind of clean it up. So when you excavated that bowl, it looked as though it was dug out, correct? Yes. Because the, the yeah. strata was two different, one was compacted and one was not? Well, it, it was two different colors. The, the sediments were red and green. And so you could really easily tell where the bowl-shaped depression thing was. Depression was, it was full of babies. <laughs> and, and then the rock around them was all, you know, this reddish color. And, did, and you found nests, plural. Did you find an area anywhere that had more than one of these bowls? Well, one of the people that had identified the landowners for us was a young woman named Amy. She, she and her brother came out and watched us excavate the site. And then, and she lived in the area. She was the stepdaughter of A.B. Guthrie, who's a very famous, he's the guy that came up with the term, the big sky for Montana. <laughs> oh, um, ah. A very famous writer. Ah, okay. And so she just went back out to the site after we had left and she found a second nest. Oh. So the first nest had, you know, we came to the conclusion it had somewhere between 15 to 17 baby dinosaurs in it. And they were all like three feet long. And the nest she found was filled with eggshell and the babies were half that length. They were like 16 inches long. Oh. So we kind of figured out how big the egg was, just based on all the eggshell that she found, using a, an optical. So, you know, eye doctors have these special gadgets to 
tell concavity, um, mm, okay. to tell the angle. And so we could use that to kind of figure out how big the egg would be. And then- Oh, from the you know, slight curve of the fragment. Exactly. And then together with that and having an idea how big the baby was, we were able to determine that, that the babies we were getting were probably hatchling size. They, they, wouldn't, they just wouldn't quite probably fit. Their skeleton would fit in the egg that we, that we hypothesized the size of based on the curvature. But if you fleshed them out, they probably wouldn't fit anymore. And have you determined the cause of death? Would it have been uh, a landslide or who, there's, uh, is there any indication I, of anything? A nest is a ball, right? And if you have a flood and yeah, I mean, that, that, would, fill least, up. that would preserve them. We came to the conclusion that, that the babies couldn't walk after doing histology on them and all sorts of things. It was obvious the babies could not have gotten out of their nest on their own. They were altricial, so. Altricial species are those in which the young are basically helpless and pretty much immobile after being born or hatched, meaning they need parental care to nourish them. That's a pretty challenging notion when you think of gigantic dinosaurs feeding their young and not squishing their little babies, but that's what Jack's astounding discovery proved. Dinosaurs were good parents. At least the duckbill hadrosaurs were. Other dinosaurs may have been precocial, meaning they were born ready to walk, run, and forage for food on their own. Their parents were caring for them. And so the reason we find them, I think, is because they were abandoned. Their parent abandoned them, and they died in their nest. So your discovery really was, it was extraordinary, finding this, this egg nesting site. And it indicated that dinosaurs did have some sort of social behavior, and you ended up calling the dinosaur the good mother lizard, Myasaura, right? Right. So we named that skull what we excavated, but uh, Myasaura, meaning good mother. So we had two nests, and then the next year after that, we started finding more nests, and they didn't have babies in them. Um, well, some of them did have babies, but they're embryos. We found embryonic Wow. Uh, young in the eggs. And then we found egg clutches. I mean, we, you know, we found a whole, whole nesting ground. So the evidence piles up that these are nests with eggs or fragments of eggs. Yes. How big are these? Are these four feet across, five feet across? The nests are about six feet in diameter. Okay. They're fairly big. Yeah. Yeah. How did these massive animals not step on the eggs and crush them by accident? Or is there any evidence of a bad mother. <laughs> I think they just stayed, babies were in the nest, they walked around their nests. The very careful mother. <laughs> Most parent animals are careful of their young. Yes. Yeah. So Jack, I know in the end, hadrosaurs are really kind of your thing, really, you know, T-Rexes, yeah, but hadrosaurs, you spend a lot of time with hadrosaurs. Why are hadrosaurs cool? What's, what's the phenomenal cool? They're basically kind of the cattle of the Cretaceous. You know, the first skeleton I found, I found at 13. It was a, a duckbill dinosaur skeleton. It wasn't, didn't have a skull. I, and then the, a lot of the fossils that I was finding on the Milk River were, were duckbill dinosaurs. I found a very nice Gryposaurus skeleton, partial skeleton, when I was young. What's a Gryposaurus? It's a duckbill dinosaur. Right. <laughs> It's one with the arch nose. That one. Yeah. <laughs> how, how many species of duckbill are there, hadrosaurs? There's a lot. I've, I've named a few. Can you describe their lifestyle for us? 
They nested in colonies like birds. They would pile up sediment and, or dirt and then carve out a concave structure. They would lay eggs in it. They probably covered them with vegetation to incubate them. We do find, you know, dinosaurs that sat on their eggs to incubate them, but, you know, these, really? these duckbill dinosaurs are too big for that, so they didn't. Uh, but the little meat-eating dinosaurs, we have found evidence that Troodon sat on its eggs. The American Museum found evidence that Ovaraptorids sat on its eggs. There's evidence of vegetation like a crocodile or a cassowary will use to incubate the eggs? Unfortunately, we, we don't get a lot of preservation of plants, but a lot of them are silicified. We have evidence of a lot of little fragments of sticks, and, and the palynologist said that there were probably berry bushes of some sort. Well, that's what I'm curious about. Uh, duckbill dinosaurs had these, they, did, they were not aquatic. They had massive batteries of teeth yeah, they I, produced throughout their life. What were they eating? I would back up from what you said. I, okay. I don't know that we have evidence that they're not aquatic. Okay. Or at least semi-aquatic, or, you know, at least paddling around in the water eating something, uh, rushes or something like that. Uh, we don't really know. Right. I mean, they obviously, they, they could walk around on the land just fine, but their bill, you know, if you think about the difference between the mouth of a horned dinosaur and the mouth of a duckbill dinosaur, it's extremely different, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, whatever horned dinosaurs are eating was very specific. They have that pointed beak. But duckbill dinosaurs, I mean, they've got that very wide beak. They've got chewing teeth. For mowing vegetation, really? I, you know, I wouldn't call it mowing. I, I don't, I'm not sure what to call it. I mean, why do ducks have duck-like beaks? I mean... They're almost like a filter feeder. Exactly. And so why do we say that a duckbill dinosaur isn't doing that? What earthly reason is there? I mean, you know, when John Ostrom discovered that Dinosaurs didn't drag their tails, that, they, <laughs> that their tail actually, you know, is very stiff and sticks out straight behind them. Yeah, it's a balancing rod. Right. It was, it was sort of from that that people started saying, well, you know, all these dinosaurs walked around on land. They were not aquatic. I see. Yeah. And that, to some degree, is true. But on the other hand, there's no reason you can't put some of them back in the water at least to feed. I mean, there's, you know, we've got all these different kinds of dinosaurs with different shaped mouths. And think about sauropods for a minute. You know, sauropods, they're gigantic animals. Now people are saying that they sat in one place and, and moved their head back and forth over large areas, eating plants, right? But if you look at their mouth, I mean, they're... Their teeth, they don't look like they'd be very good for mowing. They don't look like they'd be very good for pulling anything off of, I mean, they're just weird looking teeth, right? Right. But they right. don't have a duck-like beak. So I guess what you're saying, Jack, is it'd be okay for me to draw my duck bills back in the water, perhaps. I'm going to put mine back in the water, yes. Okay, I like <laughs> that. I like that. I don't see any particular evidence to take them out of the water. 
we know Spinosaurus was a, an aquatic right. animal. Yeah, that just right. came out recently. And it, it was a true piscivore animal. It ate fish. That's all it ate. There's no question about that. It did not run around on the land. It didn't chase dinosaurs. It didn't fight T-Rex like we see in Jurassic Park 3. <laughs> didn't do any of that stuff. It was a purely fish-eating animal. And if it ever came out, it probably only came out to lay eggs. Well, you know, they were along the Western Interior Seaway, all these spectacular fossils. So you can imagine these duckbills along the coast. Yeah, but there also was a lot of drainage. There's a lot of marshes and drainage areas as well. Right. A yeah. lot of river systems. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to have my artists, anybody that's doing art for me, I'm going to have them put the duckbills back in the water. All right. I like that. <laughs> I'll do a little sketch for you. Hey, Jack. Um, you know, I know you've you've discussed this before, and I attended one of your lectures uh, when I was I had an exhibit at the Museum of the Rockies, and uh, you threw out the idea that upset a lot of people. You know what I'm alluding to probably here is that T. Rex may have been a scavenger and not so much of a predator. And I recently reread your chapter in your T. Rex book that you did, and and I got to say, I, I think you make a pretty good case, but you don't, you never really did a scientific paper on it. Um, you threw the idea out and you get a lot of pushback or a lot of people talking. Do you have any thoughts about T-Rex scavenger predator these days? I, I did publish a paper with a number of colleagues on the Hell Creek Project and mm -hmm. we uh, and talked about the census, you know, the fact that there are a lot of T-Rexes and that in itself says something. That was yes. what, 25%? Uh, were T-Rexes. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of animals. But how does that compare to the predator and scavengers of this African savanna? Well, if you count up all, uh, you know, the lions and the cheetahs and the leopards, their total numbers doesn't come anywhere near what one species of hyena. I mean, they are really common because they're opportunists. They will eat anything. Dead or alive, they'll, you know, they're not great hunters, but on the other hand, you know, they can easily take sick animals. I see T-Rex as an opportunist. I mean, I, and that's basically what I published was that it's an opportunist. When I was trying to make the case for T-Rex being a scavenger, I really was pushing the notion that it was a pure scavenger. And, and I was doing that for a lot of reasons. I, I, you did it to stir the pot. You did it to get I people did. thinking. I, you absolutely. were a provocateur. Yeah. I did. Yeah, that's, but that's I, awesome, a... though. But that's what science is about. You have to stir the pot because, as you said, so many people want to name dinosaurs after themselves, and they don't want to see something different that, well, that's yeah. a juvenile, right? Yeah. That's right. not a Dracorex, right? <laughs> right? Right. Nobody had direct evidence that T-Rex was a hunter ever. I mean, they had, you know... They're using these funny little things like, well, we found a tooth in, a, in the tailbone of a duckbill dinosaur. So obviously it was hunting and the, you know, the bone grew back. And, right. and I'm like, okay, so one T-Rex bit an Edmontosaurus. That doesn't mean the whole group is exactly that way. I mean, yeah. and now if there's any kind of pathology on the back of a duckbill dinosaur, it's automatically a, you know, a T-Rex bite. And I'm like, if T-Rex really is 40 feet long, weighs 12,000 pounds, and has this tremendous bite force, how did it miss so many duckbill dinosaurs? I mean, what in the <laughs> world is that about? You point out that they couldn't have been all that fast, uh, that huge size. Everybody said that. I mean, you know, how right. John Hutchison shows that they just, you know, they, they don't really run. They basically walk fast, maybe. 
what I was thinking is what about the kids, the, the juvenile uh, T-Rexes? They must have been something to contend with. The kids did the killing. They were really faster and more. And then the big lumbering parents would come over and say, that's mine, you know, like the, the male African lions do and shove other creatures out of the way. I, can you see that as a possibility? To some degree, I can, but I, you know, it's, I wouldn't call that parsimonious. <laughs> I wouldn't say that's the easiest answer. I would. Yeah. But the easiest answer is that it's an opportunist. Exactly. Obviously, a T Rex has a formidable bite. Yes. And it's going to, you know. Anything it wants. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, you liken it to uh, a bald eagle. And I live here in Alaska and I watch bald eagles pretty much every day of my life here. And I do see them pretty much hanging around, waiting for a chance. But when they get hungry enough, especially here in the middle of the winter, you will see them go after seagulls yes. or whatever they can. And you'll see them just, they will go after that seagull because they are starving or, and there'll be two or three of them. Or so. grab a 20-pound salmon yes. uh, off the surface of the water, too. I've seen that. Yes. Um, so there's some talk that uh, the diversity of dinosaurs at the end of the Cretaceous, uh, that the dinosaurs are already in decline at the KT boundary before the comet hit. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? No, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What? what do you care about? What do you care about then, Jack? Look, you've, you have lived an amazing life. You've uh, rubbed shoulders with Spielberg. You've been on the set of Jurassic Park. You've excavated, uh, what, what was it, and, you found 115,000 skeletons during the Hall Creek project, right? We found a lot. Yeah. A lot, right. So what do you care about? I, I like to study how dinosaurs grew and how they behaved. Uh, you know, I, I don't care how they went extinct. Right. Extinction is just, just seems like a, every species goes extinct. Yes. Every single one. There's, there, you, you, there's no species you can show that has, you know, gone on forever. So they all go extinct. Catastrophic events are well, just are somewhat interesting, but on the other hand, coelacanths have been around a long time. Well, not the same species, though. You're not right. the same species. Yeah, right. actually, Jack, Dave, and I were talking about this. Was how long was T. Rex around? In, for instance, uh, as a species, Tyrannosaurus rex. With all species, it's hard to tell the beginning and the end. Right. right. The end is a, a lot easier to hypothesize than the beginning because there isn't a line between one species and another. Right, it's, right. There's a blur. It's a blur, and so most species duration is somewhere between two and three million years at the most. Okay. You know, the Hell Creek formation is maybe two million years, and you have to remember, you know, all kinds of things. You know, from a geological perspective, a lot of things were going on in North America. There were the seas were coming in, the seas were going back out again. That changes faunas, it changes environments, it changes all sorts of things. And obviously the species have to change with it. So it's it's hard for us to pin down, you know, the duration of any species, especially of dinosaurs, when you have so many, so many dynamic things happening with the earth. Right. I, I totally agree. Jack, can I ask you a couple of Jurassic Park questions? Yes, you may. <laughs> Thank you. 
when you advise Ray, in these it's a films, movie. it's just a movie, Ray. I know it's just a movie. But as you, you're the scientific advisor, have you had moments in the when you meet with? Well, Spielberg called you one day and said, "Hey, would you want to work with me?" And do you actually get to like say push back in the science, like you know, don't do that? They wouldn't; these creatures would not do that, or. What are those discussions like? Scientists all know that movie makers really aren't going to pay that much attention to you. So wait, you're kind of like a scientific cred? Yeah. <laughs> so in other words, if your name is attached to Jurassic Park, it gives them just a bit more credibility? Well, I would guess that's probably true because, you know, when the movie was finished, I was always asked to be part of the press junket. Uh, so yes, I would say that's that right. was my primary goal, my primary mission, as far as they were concerned. What do you think they got wrong the worst in all the films that makes you cringe? What they got wrong was mostly had to do with technology of the day. In 1993, when they made the movie, we were halfway through shooting Jurassic Park when Industrial Light and Magic actually came up with being able to make computer graphic dinosaurs. Right. We were, you know, we were working on claymation before that. They were, oh. the dinosaurs were, you know. So they're halfway through production doing a stop action. And then the next thing you know, yeah. hey, guys, stop. We've got yes, some uh, exactly. CGI dinosaurs. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And so not only that, but we also had animatronics, you know, the big puppets. Right, big puppets, yeah. They couldn't really make feathered ones. I mean, they would have just looked stupid. Between the fact that the animatronics had to, you know, whether it was stop action or, or computer graphics, together with, with these animatronic dinosaurs, they couldn't make them as accurate as we knew they had to be, that we wanted. So we knew that velociraptors should be feathered. We knew that then, but there was no possible way they were going to be able to make that. Too many feathers, yeah. You can see in Jurassic Park what they did in order to sew them together between the computer graphics and the puppets. They had rainstorms going on, right? It was raining. You, yeah, that's... they had to have it raining. Otherwise, you'd see the wires. You'd see all the... Exactly uh, yeah. right. So they, you know, mostly it was a mechanical, you know, it was just... Yeah, but you know what, though? Look, there has to be creative license in, in, in any fiction or nonfiction film. There has to be. But, of course. But, but Jurassic Park did open up an entire world of imagination, and it spawned a whole generation of paleontologists, too. It surely did. So, th yeah. you know, that is a positive thing that, that, that happened. And plus, when I first saw the first film, I was blown away. I was blown away. On top of all of that, Spielberg donated a lot of money to my projects. Well, that's, there you go. well, that's great. Uh, actually, so do you get to suggest a dinosaur or two that you'd like to see from time to time? Hey, will you do this? And I did put the, the Spinosaurus in Jurassic Park 3. Yeah. That's my favorite of all of them, by the way, that number three is. In fact, I use that scene to demonstrate my Dolby and subwoofer sound system. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that particular scene. Don't move a muscle. Yeah. And actually, now you show up. You have a cameo in number four, right? Jurassic World. Yeah. What are you doing in that in the, in the film? I'm just standing there. Yeah, I'm just standing there. It's okay. It's dead. Nobody move a muscle. 
I binge watched all your, your TED talk on the Chickenosaurus. Maybe you want to just give a brief history of the Chickenosaurus, and I want to find out where you are now with it. Well, between COVID and yeah. just every other kind of thing <laughs> you can imagine, the project started basically spun around Jurassic Park, right? The idea of trying to bring back a dinosaur is what Michael Crichton writes about in his book. And right around that time, right around you know, 1990, 91, people were, were trying to get DNA out of, out of things, out of mosquitoes, out of, out of amber. And in 1993, when the movie came out, my doctoral student, Mary Schweitzer, she and I and another guy actually got NSF to give us some money to attempt to extract DNA from our, our Wankle T-Rex that we had just collected in 1990. Kathy Wankel, an amateur fossil hunter, found some interesting dinosaur bones at a camping trip in Montana. She did the right thing and contacted Jack Corner at the Museum of the Rockies, who immediately recognized them as the ultra-rare arm bones of a Tyrannosaurus rex. A multi-year excavation project ensued and ended up unearthing one of the most complete T-Rex skeletons ever found. It was dubbed the Wankel Rex and eventually became the centerpiece of the Smithsonian's new Deep Time Hall. You can see it there now in all its toothy glory, munching on the frill of a Triceratops. Yeah. And so Mary attempted to extract DNA from it. And, you know, we got some signals, but we don't know whether it was real or whether it was some kind of contamination. A false positive. Yeah, we don't, we don't really know what it was. So in doing that, she, you know, discovered some really cool red circular structures inside of T-Rex bone, and, and that led to some other things. And, and that's when in the 90s you started the Hell Creek Project to find better specimens. So did you? We did. In 2000, we found what would be called B-Rex. And B-Rex was a, a T-Rex found under, you know, we, excavate, we, we removed a thousand cubic yards of rock to get to it. <laughs> And then she did some extractions on that and hoped to get some DNA out of that. That didn't work either. Then we created a, a mobile laboratory so we could, because we thought maybe atmosphere was getting to these samples and they were breaking down before, before we could get them to the lab. And so we built this laboratory, you know, it was an 18 wheeler trailer basically, and took it out to the site, did extractions, did the analysis right there on site. We found evidence of proteins. We found evidence of, you know, blood vessels, all sorts of things, but no DNA. Well, you came to the conclusion that DNA just doesn't last. It, it breaks down right. too quickly. Yeah. 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 So that was a dead end. And so that then, was a dead end. Yeah. By yeah. then, I really, you know, I was intrigued by the whole notion that there might be another way. And because birds are dinosaurs, technically, it just seemed like, there might be some possibility there. And so I was asking around and, and I ran into Hans Larsen from McGill University. And he was, he was studying the evolution of dinosaurs to birds. He was actually looking into the possible genetic modifications that dinosaurs might have gone through in order to, to evolve into birds. And I said, you know, if you can find that, if you can figure out what genes are involved, we might be able to just reverse it. And, you know, maybe they're atavistic genes and maybe we can, maybe we can just reverse the whole process. So. Now, atavistic, does that mean proto-genes that are now dormant? 
Yeah, they're ancestral genes. So basically right. they're genes that were programs for something in the ancestral creature, but have been turned off right. and are dormant now. They were able to turn on the, the tooth gene basically and, and get some initial uh, dentine-like structures to grow in the dentary of a chicken. Wow. Toothy chickens. So yes, so that's proof of concept, right? That is, that was an atavistic gene. Because birds lost their teeth in the Cretaceous, right? Well, some somewhere along the way. Yeah. You know, I think the last toothed birds were in the in the early tertiary. So have you been able to turn on the tail genes uh, in the chickens yet? That's where we're stuck. So when we first started the project, and you know, I the book was written around 2007 where we put sort of put the plan in place. Mm -hmm. At that time, people thought, you know, I was getting nasty notes from scientists saying, you know, this is just completely stupid. You should, you know, this is like the dumbest idea ever. And, you know, I pushed forward. And uh, in 2012, I acquired some money from, from a guy that makes, you know, movies like Star Wars. <laughs> that guy, George Lucas, yeah. donated a million bucks and said I could do whatever I wanted with it. And so I said, well, I'm going to try to make a dinosaur. That is so cool. That, that was a cool idea. That so. is a great idea. So, Well, you know, Jack, there's a certain theme in those Jurassic Park films. Yeah, so, there you is. Know, uh, there's yeah. a theme. Just saying, man. Yeah, and it's always... <laughs> if it comes uh, true... Well, it's always uh, <laughs> not a good idea, right? <laughs> well, in the movies, that's true. Yeah. Especially in a Steven Spielberg movie. Someday we might walk into a uh, KFC and say, I'll have the dinosaur, please. Have you ever so, figured yeah. out the funny name of that new uh, Colonel Sanders piece that you mentioned in one of your TED Talks? Uh, <laughs> I was thinking of a, a, a Tyrannosaurus tender. T-Rex tender. T-Rex tender. Something like that. Yeah, I was, I was implying there might be a, a tailpiece. Yeah. <laughs> and so basically you've hit a dead end so far with uh, the genetic changing of the embryonic chicken. Well, you know, what's really interesting is, you know, we, we started really working on it and we were looking at the hands and we were looking at the tail and people were saying it was a crazy idea. But then all of a sudden Yale University got in on it and, and a bunch of other labs around the world were getting in on it. And pretty soon people were finding atavistic genes, right? And so... So we know how to change the head now. We know how to alter some leg bones. I mean, there, there's a number of, we've figured out how to, you know, separate the fingers so that you could have fingers instead of wings. And where we're stuck right now is the tail. I mean, what we've discovered is that it's not an atavistic gene. So, oh, right, right. so if you were going to make a dinosaur out of a bird, you could do it, but it would require either transgenic engineering that's the addition of a gene. Right. Glowing fish. Right. Right. Or CRISPR, Cas9. Right. right. I mean, that, you know, real genetic engineering. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard of CRISPR. It's a new way for scientists to exploit a quirk in the immune system of bacteria to edit genes in other organisms, plants, mice, even humans. With CRISPR, they can now make these edits quickly and cheaply in days rather than weeks or months. It's a powerful new tool to control which genes get expressed in addition to having the ability to delete undesirable traits and potentially add desirable traits with more precision than ever before. The positives are endless. The negative, well, think Frankenstein. I didn't really want to do that, so 
in the meantime, you know, our lab was shut down because of COVID. We ran out of funding. We're still, the lab is still kind of operating. We still get little bits of money every once in a while. Um, well, so, the whole world is on hold at the moment. Right, right. Do you do this editing as an unfertilized embryo? Is that where this, this change takes place? Yes. They're viable embryos that are growing in the egg. We go in and switch a gene on or switch a gene off in the very you know youngest of the embryos. I mean, they're, these are just you know, a couple of days old. Okay, let me see if I can get my head around this. So a gene is made up of, of millions of DNA strands, correct? Right. And so you actually introduce new nucleic material into the nucleus of one of the first cells? Yeah. That's a pretty small needle. <laughs> yes, it is a very small needle. Yes, uh, they are. But that takes unbelievable precision. We've and got some really cool gadgets that, yeah, so... Is that where's that lab located, Jack? Is that uh, down there in California somewhere? No, it's in Montana. Okay, all right. And are you teaching now? You're teaching at Chapman. I am. I retired from Montana State University, and I thought I was just going to stay retired and write papers and and. And That's so, great. how do you write papers? Do you have a ghostwriter? How do you how do you uh, overcome the dyslexia? Well, you know. Computers, you can talk to a computer and it'll actually do your writing for you. So you're doing speech to text. Yep. Prior to that, how did you write your paper on the myosaurs? I uh, I would write that and and the editor would have to be patient. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Or you do your books with uh, co-authors. Um, I've written a couple of books without co-authors, but in both of those cases, I had a very good editor. I'd like to ask you, what do you think is the greatest controversy in, in science or paleontology at the moment? The, the biggest thorn in your ass? <laughs> uh, you mean besides the fundamentalists? <laughs> uh, sorry, I don't believe in a sky fairy, but yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that's, you know, the, they're a threat to science, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yes. I have a question for you, Jack, and we asked this of all of uh, our guests, and I've heard you answer this question before, but and it was very interesting what you had to say, but if you could time travel back and only go into the past, what time period would you want to go to and what would you want to see? Well, I think, I, I think almost any time anybody asks this, I come up with a different answer, right? What are you thinking today? I would go back and see my Asara. I would love to see these giant nesting grounds. So anything in particular that you'd want that you're kind of curious to see about those nests or what was going on? Oh, I, I just, I would just really like to see how the dinosaurs interact with one another, how the, you know, how good the parents parenting was. I mean, are, are they like birds? You know, dinosaurs are a very unusual kind of animal. I mean, they, they do not have big brains and yet we find them in these gigantic nesting colonies. We find them in gigantic aggregations herd likes things. I mean, it, it would just be, be interesting to see it. Are the nesting sites in North America similar in shape and size and number to the ones in South America and Argentina? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we've got a duckbill dinosaur nesting ground that covers three square miles. Really? How many nests? A lot. <laughs> wow, cool. Can't even imagine these things. I mean, you, you know, they're just gigantic. 
Fantastic. Well, okay, back to the fundamentalists. Uh, I asked this question as well. <laughs> science is under attack because people are believing opinion rather than hard science fact. And as we've seen, uh, our uh, soon-to-be-deposed president actually uh, has thwarted science. He's told He's told the opposite of what the scientists, he doesn't even follow what the scientists say. Yeah. What can you do as an educator to promote the fact that science is empirical knowledge based on fact and, and how to avoid and distinguish opinion from, from fact? Well, let, let me just say, I, I address this all the time. And I, I think us educators, especially at the college level, are the reason. We have failed so you go to university and you look at all the science departments. The science departments are not working with the education departments. In fact, they look down on them. And we have for, for decades. I know when I was going to college, you know, the geology department, you know, everybody just looked down on the education department, right? There was no, you know, if the education people came to geology, they could learn something, but the geology people never went to education to teach them. So, so it's no wonder that these teachers were not taught science. They didn't have science. They might've had science classes where you play, you know, where you learn how to make a volcano a hill and pour some water on it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but they didn't, no one was teaching them how science works. You know, that it is a process, not a product. We didn't teach our teachers that. And so, you know, it does, it makes perfectly good sense that they don't know what science is and therefore can't teach it to the kids. Right. So they don't have context. Right. That's what we need to be doing. If we, if we want people to be educated about science, we need to be educating them. No, I agree. I agree. We're lacking arts and humanities and histories and archaeology and literature as a globe of understanding. And, and so many people are compartmentalized. And uh... yeah, I, I got to say, it's really interesting, Jack, that, you know, uh, teaching the teachers is a really interesting notion. And I do know that at the university level, these the separation of the disciplines, you know, one of the things I see that you do in your TED talks and, and uh, in your outreach is you sometimes kind of go right to the fourth graders. You know, fourth graders are like 10 years old, right? The 10 year olds are like the yep. perfect, the sweet spot. Yep. And you've encountered a whole lot of kids over the years. And uh, I love the way that you interact with kids. And, and I think that's one way to really, you know, go right to the kids. Yeah, well, but still, you know, as far as getting that information to the Trump puppets, that. That's a that's a whole different thing, right? I mean, that... yeah, but sadly, our country has uh, failed in. We spent too much money on a bunch of wars and failed to invest in education, health literacy, infrastructure, science, and so uh, we're kind of left holding this bag at the moment. Yes, we are. So let's uh, all be depressed and uh, come on. How can we end this? <laughs> how can we end this uh, and, and well... talk about exciting stuff? I. Because well, what dinosaur would you what which dinosaur would you like to be eaten by? Um, well, uh, I've been this close to a hyena, and I've seen how massive those jaws are. And uh, I, you know, hyenas rip apart their prey while they're still alive. So you'd yeah. obviously be alive as you're being torn limb from limb. So I'd probably want to go with the largest jaws. Maybe would be uh, maybe a megalodon. You know, one or two bites, and you're in. <laughs> Uh, 
Ray? T-Rex, T-Rex, you'd be gone in one snap, just like beautifully filmed in all the Jurassic Park films. Well, I, you know what? I love that you know? scene where they pick up the guy and rip him apart, the two T-Rexes. Two, yeah. Rip him apart and then gulp it down. That would be the way to go. What about you, Jack? What would you like to be eaten by? Well, I guess I, right now I'm curious to know what I'm being eaten by. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jack, uh, it's really been an honor having you here. Uh, blown away by what you've done in your life it's actually i really appreciate you taking the time to kind of tell us a little bit of your life story and i would encourage you uh, are you working on your memoirs at all because you've lived one incredible life i've got to say i'm, I'm so impressed are you yeah i'm i'm trying i'm working on it that's a it's a project unto itself yeah well uh, good luck with that because i yeah, it's, it's a fascinating life that you've led. And thank you so much for sharing a little bit of it with us. Yeah, and I want to thank you for taking complexity and then turning into the most obvious and simple answers, which are probably the right ones. Well, I don't mind being wrong. <laughs> well, thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Have fun up there in Alaska. Thanks, Jack. Thank you. Well, that was pretty cool, huh? Huh? Yeah, yeah. He's an icon in paleontology. Yeah, I was a little nervous there at first, but I calmed down. It was really cool to just uh, <laughs> talk to the man, but uh, he really is a hero. And, you know, I'm so glad we got to get to know him a little bit there, you know, the backstory growing yeah. up and, um, and uh, yeah, and, you know, the struggles that he had too. Pretty amazing. Well, you know, I think it's interesting because you think about it, he said uh, his discoveries are based on the fact that he couldn't read. So he perceives the world in a, in a totally almost uh, a pure way, if you know what I mean. He's not influenced by this paper or that research paper. or, And so when you see the world from a, a large perspective, you're able to connect the dots, I think, a, a bit easier. You know, this is one thing that actually I was thinking about the other day, because I've collaborated with scientists and hung around a lot with Kirk Johnson, the director of the Smithsonian Museum now, which always amazes me. But I'm always thinking about artists, scientists, and what maybe the similarities. And I think scientists and artists observe. And this is something that Kirk brought up with the episode that we did with him. He talked about childhood superpowers as almost setting the course of your life. And Jack's childhood superpower was finding dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah. It was interesting, too, to hear that he started out with the... Uh, with the the dinosaurs in the cereal box because that's where I started, dude. Really? And yeah. to associate sugar and dinosaurs and that's oh. you know. Oh, so you're saying there's kind of a dopamine hit that sort of, happens yeah. every time you think of a plastic Pleasure center. I think it's <laughs> sugary cereal, man. So, anyways, it's cool. He's um, doing extraordinary things, and I'm glad he's working on a, an autobiography because. He's lived a fascinating life. Yeah, yeah. Pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. And I get to put All my right, duck Ray. bills in the water now. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what? After every episode, I hope you're going to draw a, a, a new painting after each episode. Because don't you, don't you expand your artistic horizons and learn something new each time? I do. That's why I wish we had six months between each episode, dude, because I really do want to do new drawings. And I'll probably try to scratch out a few. I've got a few that I just must do. So, yeah, Brilliant. we'll stick them Brilliant. on the website. Yeah. What website? Paleonerds.com, dude. That's right. Paleonerds.com. And if you like our podcast, please, we need some likes. We need some shares. We need some reviews on iTunes. 
We would love you to send in your questions. Do you have any questions? Do you have any paleontologists that you'd like to ask us to go reach out and interview? We'd love to hear from you because we can't do this without you, the listener. Hey, Dave, this has been fun as always. This has been great. Uh, thank you, Ray. Uh, are you a paleo nerd? I am a paleo nerd, Dave. I am. Are you? Me? Yeah. Are you asking me? Yeah. Dude, I am such a paleo nerd. It is sick. So, yeah. You definitely. know, I, I got to say, you've been learning. Your learning curve has been pretty steep there. You know, I mean, you're leaving me in the dust with <laughs> some of these things, these controversies. Thanks, Pops. The epochs. <laughs> All right. All right, dude. Peace out. Talk to you soon. This is Dave uh, saying goodbye from Ojai, California. I'm from beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska, by the sea. Raymond Troll. See ya. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd, I'm a paleo nerd